On August the 16th, 1987, a Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed uh, just after taking off from the Detroit airport. There were 155 people uh, that were killed, all of them except for one. There was one survivor, a four-year-old girl from Tempe, Arizona. Her name was Cecilia. At first, the investigators uh, were just certain that she was not on board that flight, that perhaps she had been a passenger in one of the cars uh, that the airline had struck there on the highway at the time of the crash. But they checked the registry of the passenger flight list, and there she was. Cecilia was there. She, she had been on that flight. And why did she survive Well, they discovered that she lived through that tragedy because even as the plane was falling, her mother unbuckled her own seatbelt and got down on her knees in front of her daughter and wrapped her arms and her body around Cecilia and refused to let go. And it was her body that shielded Cecilia from the tragedy. Her mother perished. Cecilia survived. There was nothing that could separate that child from her mom, from her mom's love. Not even the tragedy, not even the disaster, not even the fall or the flames of that accident, neither height nor death, neither life nor death. And isn't that the love that we remember each Advent season, the love of our Savior for us, who left heaven and lowered himself and then covered us with his own body. That's what it means to be in Christ. Christ covers us with the sacrifice of his own body in order to save us. And that's why we can gather here on Sunday. That's why we can worship and have communion. That's why we can be the people of God because of what someone else did for us. And what we read in our Advent reading tells about Christ's coming and why He came and why God sent His Son. Our Christmas message is found in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And I'd like for us to be looking at these verses specifically. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there, 1 John 4, 7 through 12, and you'll find that on page 1023 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own and you would like a copy, uh, please just take the copy of the Bible that's in the pouch in front of you and uh, please receive it as a gift from our, our church. And Now, First John, when you look at the Bible in the New Testament, um, it, it sometimes it can be confusing because there in the New Testament is the Gospel of John, and then there's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And what's the difference there? The Gospel of John is one of the four biographies of the life of Christ at the beginning of the New Testament. Well, then later on, near the end of the New Testament, are 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And those are letters uh, written by the Apostle John. And we're going to be looking at 1st John 4, 7 through 12. It was a part of our Advent reading 
But I want you to notice the very first word in verse 7. It's a very important word. It's the word beloved. Do you see that there? Beloved. What does that mean? That means that John is writing to real people. That's what that means. That's John's way of saying, church family... He doesn't have time to say, now, uh, John and Mary and Nancy and Steve and Bob. uh, So he just says, beloved, beloved, real people, Christians, men, women, children, families. He's writing to local churches, Christian communities in uh, what uh, is now the modern-day country of Turkey. And these churches have asked the Apostle John uh, a simple question, and that is what prompted John to give us 1 John. First John is an answer to questions that these Christians had of him about their faith. And it's a very simple question that they ask him that I'll bet you've asked. And it's simply this. John, how do I know I'm a Christian? How do I know that I belong to God? How do I know for sure? What a relevant question. And in these verses, John answers that question. Well, here's how you can know you're a Christian. Here's how you can know that you belong to God. The way to know that you're a Christian, the way to know that you belong to God, is that you, you take this test, and it is the test of love, the test of love. Love is the test of Christianity. Do you love God, and do you love others? And that's why verse 7 begins with, beloved, let us love one another. And then verse 12, if we love one another, love is the test of Christianity. What a relief. Really, what a relief. Because you see, some have erroneously thought that, well, the test of Christianity is how much I know. And so, you know, I have to master uh, certain Bible facts or I have to memorize a certain quota of Bible verses. And no, that's not true. That's not what John says. The, the test of Christianity is not, your, the con- not the quality, or excuse me, not the quantity of your Bible knowledge. It's not how many verses you memorize. Well, yeah, that's important. God's word feeds your soul. Yes, by all means. But that's not the rock-bottom test of Christianity. Knowledge isn't. And, And furthermore, not only is knowledge not the test of your Christianity, neither is either the length or strength of your faith. The length or strength of your faith. It's not. Some of you, some of you are here and you're feeling new to the Lord, and you may find yourself comparing yourself to others who have been Christians either longer or, you know, you have sensed in them a deeper faith and you, you kind of, you know, it, it's easy to maybe feel inadequate. Well, I don't feel, you know, as confident about Christianity as I wish or as this other person or I want to believe more, but I have questions or doubts. I have doubts. I mean, I'm, I, I just have doubts. And, I, and, and, well, that must mean I'm not a Christian. No, no, no. No, it, no. It's not, the length or the strength of your faith is not the test of Christianity. Um, listen, you know, um, Sarah and I, uh, we've been married 30 and a half years, got married May 5th, 1984. I am no more married now than the day I first married her. I'm no more married now than the day I first married. I went from 0% married to 100% married, like in 17 minutes. Okay. That's how long our service was. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Well, listen, those of you who have, you listen, uh, and I've been a Christian a lot longer than that. I'm no more forgiven now than the day I first came to Christ. I went from 0% forgiven to 100% forgiven 
the day I came to Christ, you see. So, you know. And I, I sometimes we let, um, you know, I, man, it's been gray the past two weeks. Have you sensed that or is it just me? Yeah. Well, that, I don't know about you, but it kind of affects my mood and my temperament and, you know, and, and then I go, oh, I must not be close to God. No, you just need vitamin D, man. Okay. Really. <laughs> just, just need some vitamin D. You're not, you know, you're not wicked. You just need vitamin D. Okay. okay. Well, maybe you are wicked, but I mean, go ahead and have some vitamin D too or be wicked and have, I don't know. But you, know, you get what I'm saying? You know, you get what I'm saying? Zero percent forgiven to 100% forgiven. And so, so just because you don't feel that your faith is strong at a particular point in time in your life doesn't mean you're not a Christian. You know, just, just means we all need to deepen our faith. That's what that means. And so, so the test of Christianity is not knowledge and it's not faith. And you know what? It's not, it's not the intensity of your sacrifice. And my goodness, I'm going to be talking about this later. God through you sacrificed so much, and it's just, a, it's just a glory to him. But that's not the test of your Christianity. It's not, okay? The test of Christianity is love. God doesn't say, how much do you know? God doesn't say, how deep or how long is your faith? And God doesn't say, how much did you give? He doesn't. He says, do you love? Do you love God? And do you love others? That's the test of Christianity. And, and you know why, don't you? You know why love is the test of Christianity? Well, verse 8. Because God is love. That's why. Love is the essence of who God is. And notice that John doesn't say that God merely acts in loving ways or speaks loving words or thinks loving thoughts. He is love. The essence of who God is 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 love. You can't think about who God is without the word love. And if you do, someone's taught you poorly. God is love. And when we love, when we love, that's how we know we know God. How do you know you know God? Love. That's how. Not facts about God. Not points of information about God. Not content on God. But knowing God. Walking with God. Being in community with God. God is love. And so love is the test of Christianity. And and it's almost like the Apostle John is able to read our minds. Because the minute he says God is love, it's almost like the listeners are thinking to themselves, what do you mean by love? What do you mean? Can you explain love? Define love. And that's important. Because in our culture, you know, we've kind of switched the sentence around, haven't we? John says that God is love, but we Americans like to say love is God. And we want to define love on our terms. And so then we define that on our terms, and then we go try to find it and search for it and seek it. And we want love as we define love, and then we spend ourselves on a quest, thinking that if we just had that, that we would be complete. But it doesn't work like that. It really doesn't. We either don't find it and become discouraged... Or worse, we find our definition of love, we get it, and then realize, well, I'm still discontent. See, see, 
And we're empty. And we're empty because we've tried to make something synthetic into something transcendent. And we're asking it to do more than it's capable of doing. So we better get the definition of love down. And here's why. (laughs) What makes you what you are is what you love the most. What makes you what you are is what you love the most. And so let's get the definition of love as God defines love. And it's this. Love. As God defines love, love is not a search that you undertake. And it's not a mission that you accept. And it's not a quest that you pursue. It's something God does. It's a quest that God undertakes. It's a mission that God goes on. It's a bridge over a chasm that God crosses in order to get to us. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And then it's like John leans into us even more. He said, now look, look at me in the eye. I want to make sure you get this. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his only son to be the propitiation for our sins. And more on that word propitiation later. Josh did a great job. That's a tough word, propitiation. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Love, according to God, is him giving and sending and sharing and imparting love. Love is about voluntary sacrifice for someone's good without payback. Say that again. Love is about voluntary sacrifice for someone's good without payback. So it's got three parts to it, three elements. Voluntary sacrifice for someone's good Without payback. Let's just unpack that for a minute. Love is about voluntary sacrifice. So there's no love without sacrifice. There's not. And we need to get that because, you know, we want, we want to define love on our terms. And so then our terms say that love is, you know, all oh, love is unicorns and rainbows. No, John says, it's not. Love is about sacrifice. Love costs. Love is hard. Love is eating with sick. Love is dealing with your son or daughter who's difficult. Love is treating people with Ebola and then dying. Love is trouble. Love is controversial. Love is risky. Love can make you feel misunderstood. Love calls you to be silent when you want to speak and then, and then speak when you'd just like to be silent. Love nudges you into action when what you really like to do is wait. And then love calls you to wait when you really feel like acting. Love is exhausting. Love can lead you to say, how long, oh Lord, how long? Love weeps. Leonard Cohen once said, love is not a victory march. It's a cold and broken hallelujah. Love, it's voluntarily sacrificing for someone's good, for someone's benefit. 
Love is always looking to someone else. Love feels poor when the loved one is poor. And love suffers when the loved one suffers. And love celebrates when the loved one gets promoted. And love wants the best when the loved one uh, wants the best for the loved one and works for it. And, and most of the time, when you know, when love is for you, it means that love is in your corner. And love is encouraging you. And love is saying, I'm your cheerleader. <laughs> I'm with you. Let's go. I'm for you. Sometimes, though, love is for you by being against you. Love is for you by confronting you. Love is for you by speaking hard truth to your face that you need to hear. Love is for you by being tough, tough love. And still other times, love is for you by just simply being with you. The the power of with. Love sits silently with the beloved so that the beloved knows that the beloved is not by themselves. Love looks quietly into the eyes of the beloved and says, I I can't fix this, but I'm here and I don't want you to feel like you're alone. You're not going to go through this alone. Whatever it is, I'm sitting here right with you. See, love. Love is voluntarily sacrificing yourself for someone's good without payback. Without reciprocity, without, and even without the person, you know, requiring the person to be deserving or worthy of your love. So love is not a quid pro quo deal. Love isn't about, love is not about placing people in our debt. Love is not Jesus saying, look, I died on the cross for you. Now, what are you going to do for me? And him giving us a payment coupon book due once a month. Real love does not demand reciprocation because real love is not motivated by the return on the investment, real love is motivated by the good that will result in the life of the person being loved. And that's why love doesn't even require the person being loved to be deserving of love. Maybe you all have heard about the, this uh, layaway angel. You heard about her? My goodness. Bellingham, Massachusetts, goes into a Toys R Us store. She pays off every open layaway account. Given about 150 customers there uh, an unexpected Christmas gift. She paid $20,000 to wipe out the entire layaway balance at that location. She didn't ask who they were. She didn't ask if they deserved it or not. She didn't require payback or reciprocity. What an image of generous love. Paying off the accounts of others. Now, is that a Christmas message or what? Paying off the accounts of others. Well, John says God is love. God says that love happens when we voluntarily sacrifice ourselves for the good of others without reciprocity or payback. So real love is one-way love. One-way love. And what's the result? Look. That we might live through him, verse 9. That we might live through him. And how does that happen? Well, that's the point of verse 10. And this strange word, propitiation. That's a word that you would only hear in church, right? You're not going to hear it at Walmart. I'd like some propitiation. Well, that's on aisle 3. I think there's a rollback price on that. Propitiation. What is that? Propitiation is this. Propitiation is that which is done to satisfy justice. Propitiation covers an injustice or covers our sins. And 
So propitiation appeases, see, the one who is offended. Let's say you go out into the parking lot and you accidentally ding someone's door. It's their new car. Dent, scratched, paint. I mean, the, and the person's right there. So you did it. They saw you do it. It's their car. And what do they need? They need propitiation. You didn't know that. You thought it was just paint. No, it's propitiation. That's what they need. And so propitiation is what happens to repair the problem, to fix the injustice. Propitiation pays for the dent. Propitiation makes it right. Propitiation offend, uh, uh, appeases the offended party. That's what propitiation does. Propitiation appeases the offended party. Now, here's the deal. You might be able to fix a dent on a Ford. But what if it's an Aston Martin? Huh? What if it's an Aston Martin? What's that? It's a car more expensive than a Ford. That's what that is. Right? Newsflash. God doesn't drive a Ford. He drives an Aston Martin. Relax. I drive a Ford, okay? So, pastor's not against Fords. I'm just telling you. God, I mean, see, we're not going to be able to pay for the dent we've caused. We can't. Because it's not just a dent if it's God's car. (laughs) It's a full-blown offense against a holy God whose character will not allow him to simply ignore or overlook our moral crimes against him. Because in any offense or any sin, whatever it is, God is the first and most offended party. And that's why I think one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to believe is James chapter 2, verse 7. Whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. See? Wow. That's what we call bad news. But the good news is propitiation. Verse 10. God sent his son to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And that's how we know that God is a God of love. Because God himself came and sacrificed himself for our benefit without reciprocity or payback. Uh, John Stott is a pastor and Bible scholar. He's passed away and is in heaven now. And he wrote these words. God gave himself to save us from himself. So that now in Christ, we can have new life. We can live through him. So that means in Christ, God has no negative thoughts about you. Imagine how your life would look like if you woke up each day and you really, to the core of your soul, you were confident and secure that based on someone else's sacrifice for you and for your benefit, you can know God loves me. And not just that he loves me, look at verse 11. He so loves you. So, huge word, huge word. 
And that in Christ, there's never not a moment of time when God doesn't love you. Randy, I just love you. Man, I protected you while you slept. I was sovereign over you while you snored. I'm taking care of you. I'm with you. I'm for you. Now trust that. Live in that. Breathe that. And, and, and then share that. I've given you plenty of my love, not just for you, but for others. And so this last question here that John's uh, audience 2,000 years ago asked that he answers, you know, what, what, what does God's love look like in me? And oh, man, verses 11 and 12. Well, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Here's a challenging question for our church family. And it's this. What is the first word that comes to your mind when I say Christian? What's the first word that comes to your mind when I say the word Christian? Well, according to the Apostle John, the word needs to be love. Love. If the first word that comes to people's mind when they hear the word Christian is doctrine, we need to do better. Love. Because when God's love floods your life, that love is going to shape and mature you. And as a result, you're going to begin to instinctively look for opportunities to share his love with others. And listen, when you're looking for opportunities to share God's love, then you're not going to be sinning. You're not. You're not. So I go to this exercise class at uh, the Y, and it's a body pump class, and it's like 50 minutes of just, you know, I mean, it's, a, a, it's, just, a, it's just a killer workout. I've never seen anybody eating Twinkies during the workout. Never. Nobody's ever, like in the middle of, instead of doing their chest track, I think I'll just eat Grater's ice cream. Hasn't happened. Why? Because they're too busy working out to do that. And so we concern ourselves with loving and sharing and giving. We're not going to have time to be disobedient. We're not because we're too focused on loving other people. We've become self-forgetful in the best sort of way, in the Jesus sort of way. And believe me, there's always opportunities to share God's love. I'm thinking about the student who feels more and more drawn to the world. That student needs God's love. The single person who's facing the death of their personal dreams, she needs God's love. That man who's tempted to walk out of his troubled marriage, he needs God's love. That woman who now faces life without the man who's been her companion for decades, she needs God's love. That couple facing debts that they don't seem to be able to pay, they need God's love. That immigrant brother who feels out of place and misunderstood, he needs God's love. That mom who is overwhelmed with parenting responsibilities, she needs God's love. The little boy who lost his dad to divorce, the woman who's living through cancer, the university student who's facing spiritual warfare, there's no place on earth where this kind of love isn't needed. Now, can you imagine in the midst of such love-starved people, a community of love? Can you imagine in the midst of a love drought, an oasis of love? 
community of Christ followers who see success not by the size of their house or the quality of their car, but by the size of their heart of God for others. Can you imagine a church community that moves beyond their comfort zone to reach hard to love people? Can you imagine a church that's willing to be misunderstood and willing to be mistreated and misrepresented for the sake of incarnating Christ's love? Can you imagine that? A church committed to overcoming evil with good. A church that won't let race or social class or gender or age or ethnicity get in the way of Christ-like love. A church even willing to have its plans and schedules interrupted and altered. A church that's willing to sacrifice for the good of others without payback. A church that embodies and incarnates the love of Christ where God has put them. Verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So so no, no one has like seen God when we love with the love of God in self-sacrifice for the good of others without payback, we reveal in a mysterious way the presence and reality of God in this world. And people are hungry for that. They're hungry for God's one-way love from his throne to our lives, through our lives, to the people in our lives. That's what I'm talking about. I think there's a couple here that kind of gets the point of John's passage here. Um, In her article, Love to Last a Lifetime, author Jill Severson wrote these words. Jill wrote, my parents got married when they were 19 and they recently celebrated their 62nd wedding anniversary, but today things aren't, are not easy for them. My mother struggles with Alzheimer's. Jill said, something about the evening makes her even more confused. Medical professionals have a term for this. It's called sundowners. Sundowners. It's a common experience for folks with Alzheimer's. And for mom, Jill wrote, When evening comes, she gets really disoriented and she demands to be taken home. She said, my mom and dad live in an apartment facility for the elderly and so we're never really sure what mom means by home. And so one night I was watching TV with my mom and dad in their apartment and it was after sundown and mom started pleading. She said, I'm tired. Can someone please get my coat and take me home? And at first her questions were just kind of addressed to the room and, and, and then she got really frustrated and she has German heritage and she cried, ah! And she focused on my dad. Why won't you take me home? Why won't you take... But dad doesn't reply. And the reason why, Jill said, was two years ago, she said, my dad had his voice box removed so he can't speak. And he can't comfort his frightened sick wife. But my mom doesn't remember the surgery. So she demands, why won't you talk to me? And he just shakes his head back and forth. Of course, this makes her angrier. 
He just shakes his head and he never talks to me, she shouts in the room. She calls him selfish and uncaring and a host of hurtful words and names. And by now my dad's eyes are misting. He's a tough man. Strong language is not foreign to his old Norwegian painting contractor. But he understands what she's really saying. I'm scared. I'm confused. And that's what's really breaking his heart. And finally, my mom decides that she could spend the night here, her apartment. And then, like in the blink of an eye, she turns as sweet as she was horrid. You poor man, she tells my dad. She says, Swede, you're a good man. We can stay here, can't we? We'll be fine for tonight. So she goes to her room and she gets ready for bed. She comes out to my dad one last time. After all this, she comes out one last time before retiring. And she puts her hands on each arm of the chair. And she gets her face about one foot from his face. And with the most endearing look, after all that happened, one foot away from his face, the most endearing look, she says, Do you have something to tell me? And he mouths the words that can't be heard. I love you. And she replies, I love you too. And she goes to bed. And Jill Severinsen writes, They have a love that lasts a lifetime. So ingrained that even the loss of memory and the loss of voice can't touch it. Love, sacrifice. Love for the sake of others. Love without reciprocity. Now, that love from the throne of heaven through you to others will be the greatest Christmas gift you 